0: Some of my favorite stories come from parents whose young children get caught in the act, doing something wrong, caught red-handed, and yet refuse to confess, try to squirm out of it. You know, mom will ask, did you eat that cookie after I told you not to? No, mommy, I don't even like cookies. You know, meanwhile, there's cookie crumbs all over their face and cookies all over the floor and like two cookies stuck to the back of their leg. Kids don't like to confess. But it's not just the instinct of children, right? No one likes to confess. We don't like to admit that we've done something wrong. We all try to cover up what we've done to minimize our sin. We try to protect ourselves from the consequences, from the fallout. Our instinct is to hide our skeletons in the closet. We all try to lift the burden of guilt off of our shoulders only to find that it's far too heavy. And our conscience reminds us that we have cookie crumbs all over our face. You might be able to clear your internet history, but we cannot clear the history of our conscience. There are some stains that we just can't cover, some debts that we can't pay. And Christianity, at the heart of Christianity, is the answer to the question that likely every human being has ever asked. What do I do with my guilt? And the answer is, confess your sins to God. Other suggestions have been offered, right? We've tried other things. We've tried to ignore it, explain it away, blame it on someone else or on society. We've tried to suppress it. Been there, done that. Experience alone tells us that that does not lift the burden of guilt. Only honest, humble confession of our sin before a holy God lifts the burden of our guilt. The gospel says that those who know real shame for what they've done and who carry the real burden of guilt can have it replaced with soul satisfying joy through the life giving forgiveness of God. In this psalm, Psalm 32, is a celebration of that truth. This psalm is for people searching for real, soul-satisfying joy. psalm is for those who carry the burden of their guilty past and are hungry for rest. psalm is for sinners. It's for you, it's for me. And the goal of this psalm is that we sinners would come before our God in honest, humble confession. No more pretending, no more faking, no more hiding. To come before Him in confession and receive the blessing of forgiveness. That's what the Lord wants for each of us this morning. He wants us to be holy and happy in His presence. Let's read Psalm 32, starting at verse 1. I want you to pay attention to the tone of the psalm, the celebratory tone. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, Whose sins are covered, blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, for night and day your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. But then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity, I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled with bit and bridle, or they will not come near to you. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the, Lord surrounds, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord, and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. This is God's word. The psalm is is easy to follow. David, the author, breaks it up into two big chunks. So if you're a note taker this morning, I'll give you my two points right off the bat. Verses 1 to 5, the experience of the lifted burden. Verses 6 through 11, the applications of the lifted burden. David moves from telling us about his own experience of having his burden lifted to what it means to us. How do we respond? And just like we saw last week in Psalm 1, This psalm starts off by telling us about the person who is really blessed. See that in verse one? Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. Blessing, the word blessing carries this idea of happiness. It's the joyful state of being near to God. And since this psalm is, is about the forgiveness of sin. It's, it's the blessing, the happiness that comes when we are in the presence of God with a clear conscience. Or to put it differently, blessing in this psalm is the joy that comes when we are reconciled to God through forgiveness. And you might have noticed that there are a couple different words that David uses to describe disobedience. Right? He mentions transgressions there in verse 1. He mentioned sins in verse 1 as well. And then the word sin is repeated in verse 2, whose sin the Lord does not count. That's actually the Hebrew word for iniquity. So some of your translations might mention all three. Uh, Transgression, sins, iniquity. It's as if David has pulled out his thesaurus to look for every word he can find to describe his disobedience. And just like there are three words for disobedience, there are three words for God's response to his disobedience. Did you catch those? whose transgressions are what? Forgiven, whose sins are covered, whose sin the Lord does not count against him. The, uh, the Hebrew word translated forgiven is actually literally lifted or lifted up, which makes sense because that's what it feels like when you're forgiven. It feels like there's been a burden lifted. David experienced the heavy burden of living day after day, week after week, and hidden, secret, unconfessed sin. And after he confessed it, he experienced the weight of his guilt being lifted. Look at verse 5. He says this again. Midway through verse 5, he says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave, same word, lifted the guilt of my sin. Back to verse 1. So not only were his sins lifted, his transgressions lifted, but his sins were what? Covered. Covering has this idea of something being hidden. His sins were hidden from God's holy sight. And then finally, the Lord is not counting his sins or his iniquity against him. This has the idea of God not crediting to David's account a debt. Think of it as a spiritual debt forgiveness. So in these two verses... David describes the truly happy or blessed person. It's someone who has had the guilt of their sins lifted, their sins covered, and their spiritual debt not credited to them. But this experience of blessing was not always David's experience. There was a time in his life when he lived in hiding and in secrecy. And that was a far different experience. That was the opposite of blessing. We see that in verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, for night and day your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was sapped as, is, as in the heat of summer. You notice the contrast in tone, right? Verses 1 and 2, happy. 3 and 4, miserable. You know, you read these verses, and you can just feel the pain and the heaviness that David was experiencing. I mean, this man is undergoing a spiritual death. The images that he gives us, the words he uses are striking of his bones wasting away, groaning night and day, melting in the desert heat of summer. No strength, no vitality. Last spring, my wife and I decided to do something that we hadn't done before. Landscape. And before last spring, our approach was to simply learn to admire the beauty in weeds. (laughs) But last spring, we ripped up all the weeds, spread some mulch, put some plants and some flowers in front of the house. Then what happened? The heat of summer, the drought. And what was once green and full of life had turned into a dried, lifeless heap. That's how David felt living with his guilt. A lifeless heap of a man. And why was it happening? Well, he tells us in verse 3, when I kept what? Silent. Sinned against the Lord. He was pretending like it never happened and it was sucking the life out of him. Verses 3 and 4 are a picture of life before confession. A picture of life in secrecy. And we've all experienced this to some degree in our human relationships, right? You, you sin against someone you love, you hurt someone you love, and you carry around this energy-zapping heaviness until you confess, until it comes out into the open. And we can have that same experience with God. You know, your relationship with the Lord is going well, you're, you're walking in joyful obedience, the times in prayer and God's Word are sweet, you even like coming to church and listening to sermons. But then you sit, you fall, and there's a distance. A few days go by, more distance. Weeks, more distance. A year? More distance. And you feel a heaviness. Right? You you can't sleep, it affects you physically. Emotionally, mentally, it's as if you are wasting away. The sins that David's heart and the world told him would make him so happy have made him absolutely miserable. And that's the experience with sin that we all know so well. In the moment, so good. Afterwards, miserable. We forget about the after effects of sin in the moment of temptation. After I finished my dessert on Thursday, I walked by the dessert table a second time. It was also tempting, and I thought to myself, I think I can sneak a little more in there. And so I put some more dessert on my plate and nom, 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 topped it off. And you know, in the moment it was so tempting, but what I didn't think about was the after effects. The hours of discomfort that comes with overeating. Right? In the moment, so good, miserable after. Sin is like a a yummy drink that contains a tasteless poison. So good in the moment when you're drinking it, but it fills you with a toxin that kills. A moment of fleeting pleasure for days, weeks, years of energy-zapping guilt. This experience of heaviness, this lack of energy, this vitality is a warning to us. Just like when our body warns us when we are on a cold day that we are too far away from warmth. Guilt warns us that we are too far away from the grace of God. A troubled conscience is a tool in the hand of God that, that warns us of danger. The danger of being too far away from Him. Guilt is a tool in the hand of God that He will use to make us miserable until, like the prodigal son who could no longer stand to live among the pigs, we return to our Father for the blessing of forgiveness. That's what David did. The crushing, painful burden of guilt drove him to his Lord. If verses 3 and 4 are the symptoms of a spiritual disease, well then verse 5 is the remedy, the medicine. The cure. What does it say in verse 5? It says, I was a mess until I acknowledged my sin to you, did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess. This uh, this, this uh, This verse of the psalm is really the heart of the entire psalm. Everything kind of is moving toward it, and then everything else flows out of it. I just want to point out two things in this verse. I want to look at our part. In God's part. Let's look at our part. The verse tells us what real repentance looks like. It tells us three things. Acknowledge, do not cover up, confess. Repentance uh, includes both a change in attitude and action. Or maybe more accurately, a change of attitude that results in a change of action. Repentance is a change of mind at such a deep and profound level that you can't act the same anymore. Repentance is, is taking sides. We no longer take our side. We no longer agree with our assessment and our opinion of ourselves and what is right and wrong. And we abandon that and take God's side, His opinion, His evaluation of, of who we are and what is right. And wrong. And then by the grace of God, we make every effort to live a life that pleases Him. You know, repentance is, is not the same as mere regret. Mere regret is just unhappy with the consequences of sin. But real repentance knows that whatever consequence we suffer in this life for sin is far, far from what we deserve. In repentance, we come out into the light with who we really are. That's what David does, right? He acknowledges my sin, and I did not cover it up. He confesses. Confession is putting words to your repentance. It's the activity of the mouth in repentance. It's confessing truth in the presence of God, speaking it, verbalizing it. In confession, we come to God without our spiritual makeup on. No carefully crafted social media profile of ourselves. No Photoshop. We like to present the, you know, freshly showered post-coffee version of ourselves. Confession looks like coming to God when you just rolled out of bed. It's the you that you don't let anyone see. It's the you that you don't even like to see yourself. In confession, we get real and raw with God. Confession says, God, this is what I've done. This is who I am. I've been pretending like this isn't a problem. I feel guilty because I am guilty, and I have one hope, that you would forgive me and return my joy. That's our part. Let's look at God's part. How does God respond to David's honest, humble heart. Does he shame him? Does he scream and yell at him? Does he kind of rub his nose into the accident on the carpet? No, that's not what it says. It says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And here's God's part. You forgave the guilt of my sin. We confess, he forgives. And it's that simple, right? Well, yes and no. For those of you who don't know, I attended this church for a whole year as a skeptic. I was um, mildly interested, much more interested in the girl that brought me to church. Mildly interested in the Bible, very skeptical. And one of the stumbling blocks for me was a misunderstanding of what Christians meant when they said that forgiveness is free. I thought, well, if it's free, well, then it must be cheap. Only free, only you know, anything that's free is usually cheap. So. Christianity just offers cheap, free, fake forgiveness. So I thought. But I was wrong. Forgiveness is free in a sense. You know, we don't require repayment or punishment. We don't hold it over someone's head anymore. It's free in a sense. Oh, but it's never cheap. And and anyone who has been really hurt and has forgiven knows that forgiveness is very costly. If it's going to be forgiveness at all. It must be free, but it's never, never cheap. It's costly to the one who is asked to forgive. In forgiveness, we do, we do two things. First, we recognize that something wrong has been done to us, that we have a good reason to be hurt. Forgiveness isn't denial. Denial likes to pretend something didn't happen, but forgiveness looks the truth of the offense right in the face and feels the hurt. Second, even though it was wrong, rather than reacting in anger or revenge, we bear it. We do the costly work of extending grace. Rather than seeking revenge, we decide to bear the burden. In forgiveness, the one who is hurt is the same one who lifts the burden of guilt off the guilty. Simultaneously free and costly. Of course, that doesn't mean we are okay with someone doing the same thing over and over again. But forgiveness recognizes an honest confession, a desire to change, and then rather than reacting in anger or vengeance, it absorbs the pain of the past and lifts the burden of guilt off the guilty. Brothers and sisters, this is exactly what our Lord has done for us on the cross. The one who is hurt is the one who lifts the burden of guilt. But how? How? Does God just simply sweep it under the rug? Does he just pretend that it didn't happen? Does God just say, boys will be boys, no big deal? No. God is eternally committed to what is just and true and good. There is no denial with God. No cheap forgiveness. He looks the truth of our sin right in the face and names it for what it is. So how does he make forgiveness possible? Well, he tells us how he makes forgiveness possible in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Turn, turn to Isaiah 53. It's on page 731. Isaiah 53. Isaiah writes about the Messiah who will take away the guilt of God's people. Tells us how much it costs Jesus to make free forgiveness possible. Here's what Jesus did in order that the guilt of our sin could be lifted. Isaiah 53, I wish I could read the whole chapter. I encourage you to read the whole chapter. We'll just look at the few verses, starting in verse 4. Surely He, Jesus, took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him and afflicted. But He was pierced for our what? transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon Him. And by His wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. How did God lift the guilt of sin? By placing it Christ. How does God make it so our sins are covered? He does it with the, the blood of a sinless sacrifice. How is it possible that our sins would not be counted against us? Well, they were counted against Him. God bears the burden of forgiveness. He does not stew in anger or seek punishment, but He acted to forgive by giving us His Son, the righteous for the unrighteous, The sinless for the sinful, paid in full. Nothing we could ever add to it or subtract from it. No more burden left for us to carry because Jesus paid it all. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole within? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. My sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord on my soul. That's why David's so happy. This is blessing. This is the path to real soul satisfying joy that starts with confession. What happy people the Christian gospel makes. Oh, let us be a happy church, happy in God. What freedom. Okay, back to Psalm 32. The psalm now turns from David's own experience to what it means for others. It moves from the experience of the lifted burden to the application of the lifted burden. David mentions four things. and We could probably write a whole sermon on each one of these, but we'll just mention them quickly. We'll just glance at them. Four things. Confess your sins. Rest in your hiding place. Receive his instruction. Rejoice in his presence. First, he tells us to Confess. Look at verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. David wants us to learn from his experience. What David experienced, the lifted burden, can be is available to all those who would come to Christ in honest confession. But did you notice the sense of urgency that says that we should pray to God while he may be found? God's offer of forgiveness has an expiration date. At my last job, someone brought me in a piece of leftover pie. By the way, how awesome is pie? I, forget birthday cake. I'm so done with birthday cake. We need to start a tradition of birthday pie. And we can start it on, I don't know, May 26, which may or may not be my birthday. <laughs> anyway, someone brought in a piece of leftover pie, and I was too busy to eat it, so I put it in the fridge And later, uh, the following week, I grabbed it and topped it off with some whipped cream and took a huge bite. I was expecting the mixture of fruit and cream to invade my taste buds, but instead there was just this nasty, bitter, sour taste. I had waited too long to enjoy the gift, and it had expired. God's offer of forgiveness has an expiration date. If you wait too long, you might find that next time this offer tastes sour. Don't wait until next time. Turn to Christ. Move toward Him and experience moving from burden to blessing. Confess your sins to Him. He does not turn away the humble. And if you're here today and you would call yourself a Christian, let this serve as a warning to us. The writer of Hebrews says to the church that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Confess your sins to the Lord this morning and receive the blessing of cleansing and purification. After the service will come around the Lord's table, use this time to get real and raw with God. It's a safe place for you. There is no safer place for the child of God than before the cross of their crucified Savior. His tenderness and patience toward us is amazing. You have nothing to fear. Confess. Because he is in the business of restoring the broken and exalting the humble. His desire is that you would come clean before him and receive blessing. Real happiness. You may have come to church today carrying the burden of sin, but you can leave knowing the blessing of God. Let this be your day. Number one, confess your sins. Number two, rest in your hiding place. Look at verse seven. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. The psalm moves from confession to protection. That's what a hiding place is, place of refuge. I think this is the logic. If God is willing to go to such great lengths to forgive my sin, well, then he'll do something far easier. He'll protect me from trouble in this life, if God is, is willing to protect me from the consequence of my sin, His judgment, well, then He'll certainly protect me from life in a fallen world. And that's not to say that if you run into trouble, it's because you haven't confessed some sin, or if you confess your sin, somehow that will get you out of trouble. That's not necessarily the case. But experientially, when we live in secret and in hiding, and we don't confess God just feels distant, and rather than running toward Him as our hiding place, we tend to run away. One of the blessings of forgiveness is is that you experience the nearness of God, and you're reminded of the anxiety-crushing truth that the God who forgives you is your almighty hiding place, a refuge when life goes bad. Confess your sins, rest in your hiding place. Three, receive His instruction. That's verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. There's some debate uh, about who's talking here. Is this God talking to David or God talking to us, or is this David as the writer talking to us? I tend to think this is God talking to us for a few reasons, uh, particularly because in the Psalms, God is described as the one who has his watchful eye on his people. You saw that in Psalm 1. You see that in Psalm 33. So this is God saying, I'll teach you and watch over you. Now, his eyes are on us. He's watching. Now don't take this as, as God watching over us with some suspicious judgmental eye. God's not some security system in heaven just eager to see us fail and to call us out on it. Rather, think of him as a kind, happy, committed coach. Who wants his players to succeed. He takes the time to instruct them and to train them. He just doesn't send them out on the field. And then when they're out there, he's on the sidelines cheering them on. Remember what I told you. Remember what I taught you. You can do it. Keep going. Keep doing that. Or think of God as a parent watching a child learn how to walk. There's so much joy. There's so much support. And even though that child has such a long way before they can run freely, the parents delight in the baby steps and pick them up when they fall. Yes, God is watching everything we do, but He is watching with a desire to see us succeed in obedience. God not only gives you all the coaching you need to obey Him, but He's rooting for you as you go. The idea of verse 8 is simple, After God forgives you of your sin, run to His Word to be coached and instructed on how to live a life pleasing to the Lord. Don't be like the horse and the mule of verse 9. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding and must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come near you. Don't be that person who never learns, who has to kind of be wrestled into submission. You know, don't be like the, the horse that doesn't know what his owner wants to do, so he has to be controlled with a bit and a bridle. Otherwise, they'll just they'll go a different direction. Don't be like a donkey or a horse. Be like a well-trained hunting dog. Hunting dogs are so happy. They know exactly what their master wants them to do, and they delight in obedience. And guess what? They're not on a leash. There's Freedom within the boundaries that their master has set for them. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to stay near him and to learn from his word. And experience the freedom of knowing those boundaries. Like we heard last week, blessed or happy is the person whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Confess your sins, rest in your hiding place, receive his instruction, and finally rejoice in his presence. The psalm ends with the same tone it started with. Happy celebration because God has brought us near to him through forgiveness. Look at verse 11. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. The righteous and the upright in this verse, they're not the perfect people, just the opposite. They are the people who know they're not perfect and come to God clean in confession. They are the ones who are made righteous and then receive His instructions. And it's those people who have found real soul-satisfying joy, who know the happiness of being near to God. Those people have had their burden lifted and can't help but sing in worshipful praise to their Savior. This is the fruit of the gospel. This is the invitation of God. That through Christ you can know the blessing of the lifted burden and the happiness of the righteous. Take it. Receive it. Cling to it. Now as we come into his presence around the Lord's table.